0: 2014 book, The Personalism of John Henry Newman, philosopher John Crosby considers Newman's influence on the present-day reader. Well known is the motto that Newman formulated for himself as cardinal and placed in his cardinal's coat of arms, *Cor Cor corps, loquitur. With this motto, Newman seems to say that he has always wanted to speak from the heart and has always wanted to reach the hearts of those whom he addressed we should understand the talk of heart as forming a contrast with the mind or intellect. Newman means that he does not want to speak only out of his intellect and does not want to address people only intellectually. Later, Crosby continues, But what about Newman's influence on us, on us who did not know him in Oxford and were not his contemporaries in England? We live in a later century and... Having no direct personal acquaintance with him, we know him mainly through his writings. It might seem that Newman was able to exercise personal influence only on those who knew him personally, and that on us who come later he exercises mainly the intellectual influence that he contrasts with personal influence. So it seems, until we consult our experience of Newman. And then we find, to our surprise, that his personal influence reaches us too. I would even venture to say that many who have read deeply into Newman's sermons and letters can be influenced by him almost as much as the Oxford undergraduates who heard him preach were influenced by him. Personal influence can dispense with actual personal acquaintance and can reach across many centuries. That's John Crosby. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. My guest for today's episode is Dave Delio, who is president of the Newman Idea, a not-for-profit dedicated to teaching interdisciplinary courses which helps students at public and private universities integrate their faith with their majors and careers. An associate professor of theology at the University of Holy Cross, he remains firmly committed to higher education and developing in students a habit of integral knowing. Dave also serves as board treasurer Of the St. John Henry Newman Association. He completed his doctoral work at the Catholic University of America. And what Dave and I discussed today is, in a way, very much in keeping with what Crosby was describing in this episode's Open that is, the ways in which we exercise and are subject to personal influence, that is, how ideas are best transmitted and enthusiasm elicited in the minds and hearts of others how it is that we, as Newman says, each receives and transmits the sacred flame. In particular, we'll hear about Dave's encounter with John Henry Newman and the ongoing development of that relationship, despite the separation of over a century. Such things occur through the facilitation of others we come to know in the here and now. And so this interview, will also hear of those other individuals that have helped Dave's appreciation for, understanding of, and friendship with Saint John Henry Newman. Here's Dave. I was a, uh, a
1: football coach and history teacher in Texas at a middle school, and um, this is around 2002, 2003. My father's a deacon in the Catholic Church, and he said, "I'm going to go study theology." And I was like, "What's that?" Mm-hmm. Now, oddly enough, I've been reading a lot of theology, like, Ch- but I've been like Chesterton, Augustine, and and mm-hmm. then philosophers and things like that. And I remember going and looking at um, the website of where my dad was going to go, which was it was a Jesuit seminary that was part of Boston College. It was called Western, Western Jesuit School of Theology. It was in Cambridge, sure. Massachusetts. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, sadly enough. It was one of the greatest experiences I ever had, definitely intellectually. And um, so, and I ended up doing a master's degree with my dad. Wow! And. Um, And it was just a, I lived in Harvard Square. It was just a great and wonderful time. And during that time, I really fell in love with, my my thing was, is we were learning, um, I'd say, much more modern philosophy and theology. And I really wanted to dig into, like, I was like, who's this Thomas Aquinas guy? And so I ended up studying Thomas Aquinas with Romano Cesario at St. John's Seminary. Right, wow. and um, and then, but I, I mean, the cool thing about Boston, they had this consortium for theology students. So I took classes at Harvard, Boston College, the seminary, everywhere, and I so I got a good, really good biblical grounding and really good, um, really good, I think, systematics in certain senses. But Father Romanus, and then I took a class with Stephen Brown at Boston College on Bonaventure and Aquinas, and was able to really kind of grasp that tradition and then along the way I had a really great kind of intellectual mentor named Father John Connolly who turned me on to Norris Clark and Kenneth Schmidt and all these guys and so I started reading really deeply into that and so around 2005 uh, I applied to Catholic U I got into Catholic U in 06 and that's what I had planned on studying I wanted to go study kind of like at the time they calling it existential Thomism, right? But I was really interested in Aquinas and then kind of how do you bring it forward? And so that's what I went to Catholic U to, to do. And um, there I met, I mean, there are some great, I would say, statesman scholars from the kind of the Vatican II era, Joseph Komonchak, John Galvin, and then John Ford. And John Ford gave our opening colloquium at Catholic U on how not to write a dissertation. That was the title of it. And John, Father Ford is like, you know, yay high and um, this serene kind of, I, I always told him he reminded me of the Zen turtle in um, Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> and um, Father Ford gave this presentation. I remember, I knew it was a, it was a classic. It was, it was, of course I made almost every one of the mistakes that he said don't do, mm-hmm. except he saved me from some major ones. And that's part of the story. So I liked his presentation, his colloquial presentation so much that I said, I'm gonna take a class with that guy. And the class he happened to teach was the spirituality of John Henry Newman. Now I knew of Newman, I knew of the development of doctrine, I delved in it a little bit, but Aquinas was my guy, slash the modern appropriators. And so um, the class begins with Father Ford saying, look, we're not gonna do development of doctrine, which is what I wanted to know about. Um, we're going to do Newman as an Anglican. And I was like, why? Um, (laughs) And Father Ford uh, opens us with reading from his parochial and plain sermons. And I remember this sermon that I read, it was called the religion of the day and it was published in 1831. And I remember sitting at my kitchen table, um, our kitchen slash dining room table in our apartment. And I was just, I was writing notes in the margin. I was so blown away by it. It it captured me. And I remember thinking, this guy is totally free in his thinking. Mm-hmm. Meaning that he's not locked into, so if you, I was really heavily at one point in time into reading Thomists and Thomism. Right. And they're very kind of, they want to use the correct terminology. They, you know, they're very focused on the metaphysics of things. And here's Newman. Who is very rhetoric and you know uh, rhetorically oriented and um, using these kind of bold images, but is very British too, very concrete stuff. Um, and, and you can tell that he's using terminology his own way. He's not part of the school, um, or it's, or you could say as father forward. It was very Oxonian for him to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Newman was grounded, obviously, in the classics. So. I was just dazzled by, by it. And also it's just how he penetrated. He's such a, he's such a study of human nature. The only other father that I would say for me, um, comes close is Augustine obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, in terms of having both an astute awareness of their own inner psychology, but also being able to read others, um, especially as it's related to the Christian life. And so I would just say in one sense, I was totally hooked on Newman, but it's kind of like dating, right? You're still hung up on your former girlfriend. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I was like, but it's not metaphysical. So, the more I read of Newman, the more I loved it because Newman talked about kind of, kind of, especially this the 1830s is essential for for listening to him or reading him because he's talking about his conversion life and what it, like, like he's talking about the process of how he's trying to defend Anglicanism. And yet these Catholic influences begin to creep in and he cannot erase them from his conscience. And he really is. I think he is at least to me, the doctor of conscience, his teaching on conscience is so different than the Jesuitical mm-hmm. kind of, even the tradition that we have in our own catechism. I, I think once now that Newman is a saint, i imagine that future versions of the catechism they reference him but they'll actually use more of his his thought okay and i i was just caught up into it um and um i didn't even care about the development of doctrine by the end of the course and i remember father ford had me read his oxford sermons and which are i mean breathtaking in their intellectual ability and you realize he's preaching it's a sermon but it's like a probably in a 45 minute to an hour sermon preached.
2: Hmm.
1: And um, I did his 13th Oxford sermon on the nature of, um, is called implicit and explicit reason. But th- what Newman is kind of exploring is how does faith become enmeshed in our natural reasoning processes? But he's also laying out the, the foundations of how do you begin to defend that which can't be fully articulated? And that's what really struck me because Newman is working this out in his own life. This is 18. He writes a sermon in 1841, I believe, or no. Uh, yes, I think 1841. He's kind of in the throes of his own Catholic and like uh, the begin this real stirrings of his Catholic conversion are happening. But Newman's also trying to tell his, the listeners at St. Mary's where he was preaching at Oxford Just because you can't give a straight up rational account of your faith does not mean a it's unreal, does not mean it's emotional. It's simply implied in all that you're doing. Now, a goal of the Christian life is to help make it explicit. But an explicit faith doesn't, does never never kind of overshadows the full mystery of faith that God has given you through grace. And that sermon, it it helped me personally, and which is I think the hallmark of all Newman, uh, all Newman's writings, it was always just right. How do I get people from point A to point Omega mm-hmm. to Christ? Right? right. That's what. So whereas Aquinas, I found, is the great ex, explicator of things that I really wanted to know, like not simply about form and matter, but like I mean, I think I still think his his doctrine of God all the way up into the doctrine of angels into question fifty. In the prima pars, is is just it's every Christian should know something of that. Newman for me picks up um where how do we make that amazing theology of Aquinas become personalized and know yeah. that we're we're never going to get um its full explication, which in other words is kind of like where Aquinas leaves off in 1274 when he says, look, it's all straw, I'm all done, right? Yeah. Newman kind of picks it up and says, "But, but this type of teaching that you've done, um, how does it become known in the depths of who we are?"
0: Yeah, I'm. And, go I'm ahead. Real, I'm, I'm just interested in in your own personal progression from Aquinas to Newman because rhetorically they're so different, so uh, different, worlds apart. Um, well, and and so that you'd ask me about my story of like how did I
1: come to him? So I'm still not sold. In fact, I'm like complaining. Bitterly to Father Ford,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like, but why can't he be more this or that or use the vote, you know? And Father Ford, the Zen Turtle, kind of is very, you know, he's just smiling serenely at me, just been like, I've heard this. He had been at Holy, he had been at, uh, sorry, uh, University or Catholic U since like 1968. Wow. And so he had seen and heard it all. He had, he had studied under Lonergan in Rome and, wow. Um, And he wasn't even a Newman scholar. He was a patristic scholar who fell in love with Newman because he saw how Newman loved the patristics. And so this is now, two thousand. so this is the summer of 2007. Well, Father Ford sends me this email um, at the end of the semester and says, uh, great paper, great seminar paper. And um, hey, would you consider um, publishing this paper in the Newman Studies Journal? And would you consider doing your dissertation under me on Newman? I'm like, what? I, <laughs> I don't want to do Newman. I yeah, just right. did it because that was the, sure. you know, and I, and I loved Father Ford's class too. I mean, he, there are several Newman scholars um, that have kind of an, almost an encyclopedic knowledge of everything Newmanian. I used to do things where I would read like obscure letters and diaries of newman and be like you know father ford in 1884 newman wrote and he'd be like oh that was around the time of the cadbury factory didn't he say in that letter you know he <laughs> would he knew it right um, and i said father ford give me the summer to discern it and meanwhile my wife was telling me she's like what do you who gets invited to do to work under one of the top people in the field i mean father ford was a top Newmanist." And, uh, but I was like, yeah, but the Aquinas and all the other stuff I wanted to do. And, um, so, but I remember it was somewhere in the middle of the summer. I just said, all right, I'm in. And, and that was it. Wow. And then father Ford really became, I, you know, he became my master and I became his apprentice. And that was for me, um, a real turning point And what I realized all along was I was apprenticed to father Ford, but it was really to Newman. See, Father Ford was, through him, he was like an icon of Newman to me, that this is what Newman always wanted everybody in the faith to be able to do. Find the wiser person, humble yourself, and learn. It didn't matter, in other words, as long as it was orthodox and holy, and it brought you to holiness, this is the path this and Newman would call it personal influence. Mm -hmm, Right. He's a a great Oxford sermon, personal influence, the means of propagating the truth. And what he would say is that no teaching and learning can truly happen unless it becomes person to person. Right. Um, and so that's what happened to me. Um, and it still took me a while. I mean, to this day there, you know, Newman is such a, um, a masterful rhetorician, he is a Cicero of our, of our tradition. Um, So he doesn't, defining terms down, like, you know, Aristotle would do in, in, in book Delta of the metaphysics, uh, Newman was never concerned with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was oddly enough, very Aristotelian in how he, he did things. Um, And the more I kind of read Aristotle vis-a-vis, Newman, I can actually see there's tremendous parallels, even though there's historical distances, right? Right. Um, we get hung up in the Catholic tradition, and this is a step back from that. Sure. But of like the systematizing. Right. Because for 400 years, we went through a manual tradition that loved to systematize and cleanse, right? And, and to turn things into to logic and deductions. And I would say that that was an unfortunate product of the, the Protestant Reformation. In other words, where you have the, the magisterial Protestants beginning to define doctrine in a new way, we had to have a response. Right. And so we also, we were also caught up in kind of, you know, the scientific age of precision of writing. And what made Newman for me both an uncomfortable, but then as I've grown into my, Knowledge and study of him, what makes him a saint for our time is, and for his time, was that he wasn't formed in that tradition. And so his thought was freer. He wasn't bogged down into precisions of definitions. Mm-hmm. I like systems. I like thinking systematically. Newman helped free my mind to reappreciate the system. See, Aquinas was not a systematic thinker, he was a dialectical thinker. Sure. who happened to try to bring things into an array that conformed to the truth of who God was. But systemized thinking really doesn't happen until Suarez in the 16th century, and then it gets taken over by, both really by the Germanic tradition. I mean, the French always had movement in there, and the British were, I would say the Germanic and I would add the British in there that they tried to kind of make things systematically arrayed, mm-hmm. not dialectically or dialogically raised, uh, relayed uh, arrayed like the, the great 13th century thinkers in the right. church. And Newman had none of that, you know? And so um, it was a hard transition, but I realized it actually, in the end, I see God's providence in all of this. And I also, really see Newman's providence um working with me you know pre-canonized saint but I kind of always knew he was sure I mean I prayed to him during my dissertation all throughout <laughs> um well I would blame him too like look you got me into this That's like right. you got me out of this that type of stuff yeah
0: yeah um, um but yeah, I, I'm interested in, I'm interested in in you know, something you were mentioning earlier, you know, the personal dimension in Newman's uh, understanding of how the faith gets transmitted or people right. are under the influence of others that are wiser or, or sort of nobler. And uh, I'm in the beginning of the apologia provita sua right now. And it's amazing to me how he's dealing with ideas all the while dealing with people. That's right. And it's always right. embodied ideas and those ideas developing in the lives of other persons and being expressed through incarnate friends or mentors, or it's never just universals that I contemplate intellectually. It's always here now, flesh, blood uh, words from another person. That's really rather striking.
1: No. And I actually, that's a wonder, you know, a lot of people try to put the apologia and the confessions together and they're not, they're different, you know, different accounts. Newman wrote the, um, the apology in almost in about six weeks' time, he was writing it as kind of they were they were um, written for serials, right? Um, to respond to this um, to uh, to Kin, uh, Kingsley, and um, it was it was over the press and in. Um, Cyril Regan at Notre Dame had said that, and I think he's right that it's it's it was a forensic account. So Newman was on trial for his life in so many other ways too. And so, but it's also like, it's just how the British reason. They love to reason, like mentioning names and places. They're they're an earthen, Mm -hmm. like earthen and kind of personal is, and also the particular. It it doesn't strike me at all as strange that nominalism also arose in England. Mm -hmm. That analytic philosophy that's hyper-focused on logic in particular has also happened there. That's just a function of how that, culture reasons and so newman does that but i think what you're saying about how he would never say an idea came to me but it came to me through edward hawkins or richard Waitley or richard you know richard hurl frude um is exactly right he's not name dropping to say i'm just doing this mm-hmm. he's saying it because that's actually how it came to him um he doesn't spend a lot of time telling us where all his book ideas come from Mm -hmm. he talks that he read hume he had read Locke, um but in the Apologia, it's 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 the people who are mediating and then obviously the fathers like athanasius becomes very important to him but it it becomes important because his students and and pusey and others kind of show him the importance of 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 the fathers and um the other thing is it, it it made me think about what you know in also, in respect to what you said, uh, Alastair McIntyre. While I was doing my dissertation, we wrote mm-hmm. back and forth. And um, McIntyre has this um, line in Who's Justice and Which Rationality," where he talked about you know how Bentham was such a terrible thinker, um, but he also had a line in there about how Newman was really one of the first people to inspire him to think about how reason is embodied in traditions. Okay, and there are incommensurate traditions. And so I wrote to him and I said. Care to share more on that? And he goes, no, no, I don't remember where I thought about that, but it's totally true. Newman will make <laughs> you think that way. And I think your comment really um, uh, addresses that fact, that everything for Newman, how he learns the faith, and how the faith should be moved is person to um, person, embody and incarnate.
0: And it seems to go along with uh, his choice for his cardinal at Mata, right? Cord, core, loquitor, right? And- right. And is that sort of just the, the coalescing of everything that had preceded for him? You know, he's just sort of putting an emblem to what had always been the case for him? Or is he, is that a development for him that he well, would choose that? You
1: know, at that time he was reading St. Francis de Sales and he, he honed in on um, what de Sales was saying. And it, it was in one of his letters Um, and he would, he would put St. Francis de Sales and St. Philip Neri as really the two Catholic saints that moved him forward, which I find amazing because Newman does not say like the great intellectual saints, like Augustine or Aquinas became his figures. It was the great spiritualists, Mm -hmm. you know, the great man of heart, which is St. Philip Neri of joy and heart, which are not Newman's character at all. (laughs) St. Francis de Sales. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Um, when you see it that way and I would say that Newman um, his temperament was definitely melancholic mm-hmm. um, and almost like an acerbic me- melancholic in certain regards but he also had a choleric element to him that was bold and and in what he did and, and how he acted which is not to sales note was neither niche
0: uh, uh, nary or uh, the sales. Those two saints are interesting in and, the, in and of themselves. Cause you mentioned Newman's interest in the fathers. Uh, but those two saints are sort of Catholic reformation saints in that era. Uh, so was that, is that an accident or is that something Newman would have been drawn to the sort of that that's dynamic really, of history?
1: Well, and you know, if I, I guess if there was the intellectual saint of Newman, it is Athanasius. I mean, okay. I think that's, that's really his, his, um, where he centered himself. Um, You know what? That's a really good question. You know, Newman was very interested in the Anglican divines that followed the reformation, but that kind of, that they were the real reformers of, of the Anglican church in his early life. And he he still saw much truth in them. Um, I don't know if, that's a really interesting question. I don't even know if anybody's explored that, you know, those two saints who were so important to him in his spiritual life, how that correlates to the reformation, but that's a, I mean, that's, that's, there's a paper or a book out there waiting to be done on that. Because, <laughs> no, it's a really, yeah. because Newman, um, uh, Brad Gregory and I, who, he, Brad Gregory wrote The Unintended Reformation, which is a really, um, mm-hmm. I think, fascinating book. And we've corresponded over the years. And I have said to him, I said, you know, Newman really um, articulated your thesis, you know, 150 years before you did. Um, so you're, I told, you know, in the, instead of a matter of compliment, like you're in great company, Newman saw that the Reformation was really the shattering of the Western intellectual and spiritual tradition, and it's, it, it's what gave rise to modernity or what Newman calls liberalism. Mm-hmm. And so because, in other words, when the body of Christ fractured the way it did and how it did in the Reformation. So I wonder if those Catholic saints, I, 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 here's what I would say. I could comfortably say I don't think it was anything conscious. Mm -hmm. Like, like Newman wrote, this is why, but, um, I do think that there could be, it it is a surprising fact of why they're correlated at that period of time and why that resonated so deeply with Newman's spirituality. Right. Um, but heart speaks to heart. What I want to say about that is Newman felt things deeply in his heart. Um, everything, he took everything too hard. I mean, that's kind of a trait of a melancholic and, um, from his sister's death to his father's death to um, the death of friends, um, but also just what he felt sometimes wrongly and rightly as betrayals and all these other pieces that we would see as sometimes you could see them as failures of character, except I would just see them as just very human elements because Newman would also knowing when he would fail, you can see it in certain of his writings where he's kind of asking for grace. He's asking for forgiveness in, in, in his own ways, because he always wanted, if especially if he felt betrayed or abandoned, or if he did it to someone else, he would always want their hearts to kind of reconnect. And I think that that just became, I'm sure when he came across uh, Francis de Sales' writings, and I believe it was in the 1840s when he's in Rome, um, and that's the time when he discovered St. Philip Neri too in the oratory, that's where Newman, I think, starts to hone in on this really is who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it grows. I mean, obviously, he doesn't choose core cord core until um, the 1870s or 1879.
0: Right. How does this all play out, this heart-to-heart focus in his ideas uh, regarding education and maybe what you're trying to continue to do with the Newman idea?
1: Good question. Um, well, it was about three years ago, two and a half, three years ago, I met a fellow named Don Brill who is the great founder of Catholic studies at university of St. Thomas. And Don was a Newman guy. In fact, Don had said, Oh, you know, I read your book. And I said, well, you're like the first person outside of my family that I forced to read. <laughs> book. Um, and he goes, Oh, I found it in a bookshop in Rome. And he goes, it was a great book. And I, It was such a tremendous compliment. This was in, and, uh, Don, um, Don and I became well acquainted in the fall of 2017. And, we, our connection was obvious with Newman, but it was trying to do, I wanted to do something different with higher education to kind of really uh, flesh out the principles of what Newman was saying and the idea of the university. And I wanted to do it at, I was at the University of Holy Cross in New Orleans and Don said, well, why do it at a Catholic college? Why not go to a secular college? I was like, well, there's a million reasons. Number one, we're the Catholics. And he said, well, you know that 90% of Catholics go to secular and state schools. I had never heard that before. Okay. It is true. It's mm-hmm. probably even more than ninety percent at this point. And I said, but what about church and state and all these other problems? And he talked to me about the University of Mary and how they had been able to to establish a college kind of presence at Arizona State University in Arizona. And my imagination immediately just kind of blew open wide with the possibilities. How could you do something Newmanian for Catholic students? who were not at Catholic colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. You know, um, at its high water mark around 18, uh, about 1965, we had close to 300 Catholic colleges and universities in the United States. By my count right now, coming off of USCCB's website, we have about 197 left. Okay. And so in 50 years, we've lost almost 100, almost 100 colleges and universities. And several, I mean, in the last three years, we've lost like about 10. Okay. And so um, the point is, is that, well, how would Newman think about that? And Newman's project was starting a Catholic university in a secular, uh, a secular Protestant country, you know, um, uh, in Ireland. In other words, it was a deeply Catholic country, but the education system was either Protestant or secular. Okay. So Newman had this issue of how do you, how do you feather in a Catholic university in that type of environment? And he succeeded and failed. Like, so it ran for several years, and um, it, didn't, it didn't come through, and there's a host of reasons why, and those to me are not as important as this. On July 4th, 1857, Newman was writing to an, an inquirer. Um, the university was in, kind of in a winding down stage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Newman had said, well, what if we had partnered with the secular universities and offered more of a theological Catholic formation but their degree came from the secular university and the light bulbs went off in my mind. Wait. So Newman was actually trying to do this too Hmm. in his own context. And so Don died in February of 2018. So two years ago, right around this time. And, um, I saw him right before he died. And I said, I want to start a nonprofit that honors you and what you're trying to do. And he said, don't make it about me, make it about Newman. Mm -hmm. So I think flying home from Minneapolis that day, I came up with the concept of the Newman idea. And we had had a a kind of a guild form of scholars down in New Orleans. We were meeting regularly and reading. And um, I said, why don't we turn this into a full-on nonprofit? Everybody agreed. And that's kind of the, the path it took. And so one of the things about Newman that I've become restless with is um and i'm i'm a board member of the newman association of america um is that i think there is too much of an intellectual appreciation of newman and, and in other words an over appreciation in that regard okay newman was a man of the people he was an oratorian right And the oratories are notorious for being great parishes um that involve the laity and it's about lifting the laity up both through grace and sacraments but also in a sense how do we kind of open their minds as far as they can go to Christ. Mm -hmm. And what I began to kind of get fidgety about was I read, uh, I've read too much Newman stuff. (laughs) And Newman had become the preserve of intellectuals. The place where Newman would not want to be. Okay. You see, Newman was a thinker, one of the greatest of our church, no doubt, but he was a doer. Okay. I mean, in his life, he founded several journals. He started the Oxford movement or was one of the, the great instigators of the Oxford movement, founded the first oratory in England, founded actually this first several oratories, uh, the first two, you know, was part of what Faber started in London, founded a university in Dublin, um, started an oratory school when he returned back to Birmingham. Um, he was he was not a guy who sat and just read and lectured. In fact, his best intellectual work was done outside of the university context, not inside of it. Development of Doctrine, Grammar of Assent, Letter of the Duke of Norfolk, Idea of the University were all outside of university contexts. He was not a researcher, mm-hmm. you know, he was a writer and a promulgator of ideas. I mean, he did tremendous amounts of reading, like, sure, more than most human beings. He'll do, he could do in. In his years of his life, he did more than most intellectuals do in their whole. Mm-hmm. But I focused in on the doing side of Newman instead of the kind of thinking side of Newman. Sure. I've done. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm done with my own thinking, but I realized that something needed to be done. The church needs doers. Right. Um, you, we have tons of journals, tons of books. I mean, books. My God, we have so many books out. <laughs> um. I would say at this point in time, the Catholic church, especially in the United States is probably the most educated church it's ever been. And yet I, when I, when I talk with people, it's like, it's falling apart. Things aren't happening. Mm-hmm. The faith is, well, how is that? Yes. How do you correlate these two things? Right. So I realized that I wanted to do a, an outreach to college students. Cause I didn't go to a Catholic university and I didn't go to a Catholic high school. I went to a public high school in a small private little arts college in Texas.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I had no one to answer questions the real questions or the or, or debate me and raise the issues that I needed to hear. I, the, when I was in Texas, I kind of argued, I got tired of it, but it was like, you know, evangelical Protestants um, and the great group of people, but I just wasn't interested in what they were saying. And the Catholic campus ministry on my campus, I had no draw for it. But if someone had asked me about, you know, um, what is the nature of evil or why, you know, why God? um i wanted I wanted to debate those things. I look back at my college. I wish people had sure. um talk to me about that stuff and so um those kind of ingredients came together don brill Newman um going to where the sheep are rather than hoping the sheep will come into your corral right That began the Newman idea, and so it's i mean obviously it's an intellectual ministry it's for college students. Um, And we're trying to do something a bit different than most of the ministries that are out there, which is we're actually trying to teach college courses so that you're going to get a 16-week course and you're going to get college credit for it. And it's not a straight-up theology class. Newman was not a theologian. I know people want to pin him as that. He did theological writings. Mm -hmm. But Newman, as I would call him, was an integral knower. So he loved philosophy and the classics and rhetoric and theology. And there is none had, all had equal purchase on his mind. And so what we want to do with college students is say, you want to be a business major or you want to be an engineer or a nurse? Great. But we want you to be able to think with your faith in all things that you're doing. Because most likely your career is going to change. But your faith, along with what you're learning, can always keep adapting. That's what, like, kind of integral knowledge is.
0: And so this is why your, so, your tagline, your slogan, uh, in other words, is the communicating the gift of integrity then. Is that that's right? And Newman, and Newman, actually, it's from a Newman
1: quote. Okay. In his, uh, a, a series of essays he wrote. It's in a book now called The Rise and Progress of the University. Um, Newman has this, there's a, a chapter on, it's uh, called Colleges and the University. And Newman talks about how in the integrity of anything is a gift super added to it to make it better than it can be itself. And so what we think is if you have faith, you have an intellectual virtue that makes you better than you were without it. But if you don't use it, if you don't exercise it properly, it becomes kind of sh- as you know, the, the the parables, it becomes shriveled up and dried up or put away or it becomes sentimental. Right. And Newman was absolutely, absolutely dogged on this point. When he left his evangelical faith when he was young, he was absolutely clear that faith had to be seen in relation to intellect and reason. As it could touch and dwell in the emotions only to bring them out in to the reasoning faculty, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so what we want to do with our students is say, don't suppress it. Don't think your faith is simply about your worship or your prayer life. You have to see it as engaged with everything you're doing on your campus and in your life. But the way we want to do it is not simply to give a talk or a lecture on it. We actually want to say, here's how it works. Come into a class with us. We're going to ha- it's seminar style.
2: We're
1: mm-hmm. going to be reading difficult readings. You're going to be writing difficult things but you're going to be thinking integrally how does your faith connect to these things? And then how does it connect to your course of studies? We're at Tulane university right now. And I would say that our first semester of doing this, it, it worked out better, far better than I thought.
0: In his sermon, personal influence, the means of propagating the truth. Newman wonders how, despite all the difficulties besetting the communication of the truth Error, wickedness, ignorance, and all the tools at their disposal. How is it that this truth has nonetheless been transmitted down the years? Newman says, I answer that it has been upheld in the world not as a system, not by books, not by argument, nor by temporal power, but by the personal influence of such men as have already been described, who are at once the teachers and the patterns of it. Men persuade themselves, with little difficulty, to scoff at principles, to ridicule books, to make sport of the names of good men, but they cannot bear their presence. It is holiness embodied in personal form, which they cannot steadily confront and bear down, so that the silent conduct of a conscientious man secures for him from beholders a feeling different in kind from any which is created by the mere versatile and garrulous reason each receives and transmits the sacred flame, trimming it in rivalry of his predecessor, and fully purposed to send it on as bright as it has reached him. And thus, the self-same fire, once kindled on Moriah, though seeming at intervals to fail, has at length reached us in safety, and will in like manner, as we trust, be carried forward even to the end. Thanks to Dave Delio for his time and insight into the life and work of John Henry Newman. Please do check out The Newman Idea, links for which can be found in today's show notes. And this wraps up our four-part series focused on Newman. If you missed any of the earlier installments, you can go back and give them a listen. There you'll find Dave Devil talking about Newman and other non-Catholic Christians. Bud Marr talking about Newman's ideas concerning the development of doctrine. And Katie and Jules van Skijsik discussing Newman's personalism, which in a way uh, was on display in today's episode as well. So the next personality we'll be looking at is the great Franciscan philosopher and theologian, blessed John Dunn Scotus, who was one of the great thinkers of the high Middle Ages. And So when we come back in a couple weeks with that first episode, we'll start with a general look at Scotus and just sort of an overview of some of the main themes and accents of his thinking at work so i'm excited to to get those together and put them put them out there until then though let's continue journeying further up and further in